All right. We need to get started. We're running a little late. Even the people who are usually late are here already, I think. That means we're really running late. All right. Just by way of announcement, just a reminder of the two trips we have up on the Dean Bible Ministries website. Uh, the tour to Egypt this coming December 26th to January 5th. The tour group would like to have our uh, good head count. So if you can get deposits in by May 1st, do so. If not, let me know you're interested. Second, uh, we're having a tour uh, to Israel again next year, April 26th to May 8th. Third announcement is that, um, and you can just go to the news page on the DBM website for information there. Also to pray for Camp Arete, July 14th to 20th, and for Vacation Bible School, July 8th through 10th. And then last but not least, the uh, audio, video, whatever, of uh, George, Dr. George Meisinger's memorial service is up on the Dean Bible Ministries website. Is that correct, Barb? I'm asking you a question as you're unpacking. Okay, good. It's also up on the chafer.edu website and probably Charlie's website. So uh, if you're interested in watching that, I've already heard one person at least tell me that they've watched uh, watched a good part of it. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to make sure we're spiritually prepared in right relationship with God the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit. It's just amazing how quickly we can shift from walking by the Spirit to letting the sin nature control us. And we always have to keep short accounts. So we need to, uh, if necessary, uh, confess sin, which simply means to acknowledge or name our sins to God, acknowledge or admit our sins to God. And when we do so, he instantly forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to begin, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have forgiveness of sin because of Jesus Christ. Too often we forget the importance of that as we have been believers for so many years and understand grace. And your grace is just beyond anything that we can imagine. And and it's easy for us to just relax in it, not to realize what a tremendous privilege it is that you have so freely given a, a salvation to us that pays the penalty for all sin, requires nothing of us because nothing we could contribute would help at all. And Father, we're just thankful that we can, uh, on this basis, continue to have an intimate relationship with you uh, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we're thankful we can come together to study your word, to see how all of the pieces of your word constantly fit together and uh, and complement one another and develop one another so that uh, all of it fits together in one perfect harmony. Help us as we study today to understand all of the different 
uh, nuances and aspects of the Davidic covenant that we uncover and how all of this fits together. And Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for uh, the protection for our president, for those leaders who really truly do seek to maintain the rule of law, the rule of constitutional law, who do understand what that means. And Father, that you would restrain the forces of evil that seek to destroy this free nation, a nation that supports Israel, a nation that freely proclaims the gospel and sends missionaries out throughout the world. And there are so many in government who hate this, who just despise uh, Christianity and the rule of law, which comes from a Judeo-Christian foundation, and they seek to uh, sabotage this at every possible moment. And we pray that you would prevent them from doing so and that you would raise up more and more people who want to know the truth and want to implement the truth and whose eyes will be open to the evil that is going on around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Now this is lesson 168 in, in our series on Samuel, 1 Samuel and now into 2 Samuel. And it seems like we've been studying about the Davidic covenant for a long time. Actually, it's been a little over two and a half months we started with lesson 160. 160 and 161 talked about the content of the covenant itself. And then with 162, I began to take us through its relations to prior uh, scripture. For 162 was about its relationship to the Abrahamic covenant. And then from 163 to the present lesson, uh, we have been looking at how it is developed in subsequent Scripture. And so this is important. It seems like we've been doing this a lot longer than that, but that's because we had the Chafer Conference, and I was out of town one week, and then we had an Easter special last week. So it's almost like a month of Tuesdays uh, disappeared in the middle of this. So it seems like a, a long time. Tonight we're going to look at the next phase in this, which really develops out of the idea of the Davidic covenant as um, and the references to the Messiah as the branch. And as I pointed out from Second Samuel chapter uh, 23 at the beginning when we related this to Isaiah chapter 4, is that this term, the branch, comes out of uh, a statement of David's in Second Samuel chapter 23, and it's developed uh, in many different ways through different passages. So that's what we're doing. We started with Isaiah. We looked at some really significant passages in Isaiah chapter 7 uh, and 8 and 9, the last two lessons. 7.14 talks about the fact that this uh, messianic seed from the house of David would be uh, a sign uh, of his birth would be a virgin conception and birth. And this is then uh, further developed in Isaiah 7, 8, and then ending in 9. Well, that part in 9, 6, we'll look at this in just a minute, talking about uh, the various titles for Emmanuel, indicating that he is both fully God and fully man. So uh, we have been studying about the Davidic covenant, as an outgrowth of the Abrahamic covenant, which emphasizes three aspects, land, 
seed, and blessing. The land is expanded in a land covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 29. Seed means descendants. And we'll see this at the end of the message. I hope I get there tonight. That seed is a term that has a collective sense. So it can refer to a plural and would be translated descendants in that uh, in that sense, or it can refer to an individual, in which case it would refer to a singular descendant. But the English word that captures both elements, both the collective sense and the singular sense, would be the word offspring. Offspring can refer to many or can refer to one. And so in the Davidic covenant, God promises that it is the offspring of David that will fulfill this role, uh, uh, and the Messiah will come through David. And then the last element of the Abrahamic covenant is the new covenant, the blessing to all men, and that is described in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 31. So the Davidic covenant, as we've seen, has three elements that God promises an eternal house or dynasty. David wanted to build a house for God, and God said, mm, not so fast, I'm going to build a house for you. And so that play on words indicates that God is building a dynasty for David that will culminate in someone who is eternal. There's the eternal kingdom that he will rule, and he will reign from an eternal throne, which is the throne of David. Literally, it will be a in the millennial kingdom, the first phase, it will be a literal geopolitical kingdom centered in Jerusalem. So again, the vocabulary that I've introduced you to, this is a diachronic study. Diachronic is a word that means through time. So we, we started off with this going back into Genesis with the Abrahamic covenant, and then we started working through the prophets chronologically, the major or the latter prophets actually, um, and that it's intertextual, which describes how Later passages will use vocabulary and terms that go back to a previous statement so that you see the dots connect. And this is just such a tremendous testimony to the ultimate unity of Scripture, even though it's written by over 40 authors over a period of over 2,000 years. Nevertheless, there is a unity in the Scripture that goes beyond some human manipulation. So in the chronology here, we have the early, early, uh, it, the latter prophets. Early prophets are the writers of Joshua, Judges, uh, Samuel, Kings. The latter prophets are uh, the the big books, the major prophets: Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, and then the twelve. And if you put them up chronologically, Joel and Obadiah probably ninth to eighth century. Uh, no passages there. The key passages that we're looking at related to this, we've looked at Hosea already. Uh, we've looked at uh, Amos already, Amos 9. And we've begun Isaiah. We'll finish Isaiah tonight. We're not looking at all, all of the passages, just key ones. And then also we'll look at the one passage in Micah chapter 5 tonight. And then we'll go to Jeremiah and look at a couple of passages there. And then Ezekiel and then wrap up with Zechariah. 
many of these passages are all talking about the same thing, giving us the same information, so we don't have to do a tremendous amount of drill down uh, there. Now, we finished up last time looking at Isaiah 7, 8, and 9, and then and this chart gives us the, the, the summary of the structure of Isaiah 7 through 11. Isaiah 7 gives us the sign of Emmanuel's birth in verses 1 through 16, followed by a judgment that is announced by God, divine judgment on Judah, Damascus, and Samaria, that God always disciplines nations for their failure. It it's, involves two things. First of all, in terms of God's divine institutions, there's built-in consequences for failing to uphold those divine institutions. And we as a nation are experiencing that because there's a full-bore attack on all of the divine um, divine institutions in this nation right now. Everything from the, the, the border to gender identity, all these things are just attacking every aspect of of the of divine establishment and so um if something doesn't change the, our whole society and culture just just will implode just as uh, Israel's did in the old testament so god announces the judgment on judah damascus and samaria in isaiah 7 17 to 822 then there's the sign of the divine nature the only solution to human culture and the only solution to human history and the chaos of human government is a divine perfect king and and that will never be accomplished apart from the messiah and this is what you have in these utopic concepts that we find progressivism marxism socialism are all predicated on uh first of all they reject god Ultimately, in terms of there, there, that doesn't mean there aren't people who are Christians there, but those philosophical systems all reject God. They reject the sinfulness of man, and they believe that man is perfectible, and therefore society is perfectible, and man can bring in a utopia on his own. And socialism has never even improved a situation, and it never will. Marxism will not. They all end up in some kind of totalitarian control because the only way that you can ultimately produce what they intend to produce is to control everybody. Uh, it's totally anti-freedom. Uh, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 tells us that the ultimate perfect government comes when the perfect king comes, Emmanuel. That's followed in Isaiah 9, 8 through 10, 34, and this is where we are tonight. Judgments announced on the northern kingdom and on Assyria. We'll just look at the last part of chapter 10 as we set the context for the messianic branch uh, of the Lord, the introduction of that in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. In 2 Samuel 23, 5, this is a passage I referred to a minute ago. David says, Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. And then he sa- it's translated in the King James, or New King James, will he not make it increase? Literally in the Hebrew, uses the word the the verb tzamach in the hifil, which is the causative sense, will and that indicates that the verb has a causative sense. Will he not 
cause it to sprout or to branch out. And so then we see that one of the words used for branch, there are several different Hebrew words used that are translated branch, is the the noun samach. So this then comes into play in our understanding of these passages. We saw it introduced in Isaiah 4.2, the branch of the Lord. Uh, then we will also look tonight at Jeremiah 23.5-6, through 6, the branch of David. Uh, God, uh, the branch is referred to as my servant, the branch, Zechariah 3.8. And if I were really drilling down on this, that term there that connects the branch with my servant would mean that we go back into into we can go back into Isaiah and all of the passages in Isaiah the messianic prophecies that that don't have overt connections to the davidic covenant but they refer to the messiah as my servant that connects it because of the usage here that my servant is the branch and therefore, all of those references to my servant in Isaiah and Jeremiah are ultimately an allusion to the figure the Davidic, of the Davidic king. So that's how it all connects together. So let's look at the context. Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. And this comes, as I pointed out in the chart, at the end of this section that started in Isaiah chapter 7. And in Isaiah chapter 10, there is, there is a judgment that is announced as to what is coming in the future. And it moves very subtly from the near future, which is the Assyrian invasion that will destroy the northern kingdom in 722 and all but destroy the southern kingdom in the subsequent invasion into the south. And as we look at Isaiah chapter 11, this is what we, uh, what we see. We've seen already in this section that the house of David is given the sign of a virgin conception and birth, affirming God's promise to David that he will protect his house and put an eternal descendant on the throne, that that descendant will be called Emmanuel, that Emmanuel will come during a time of oppression in Israel. That is the whole passage there that talks about uh, eating curds and honey. Now, I got a good question that came in. Well, how does that differ from milk and honey? Milk and honey is a phrase that's used by Moses in the Pentateuch to talk about the potential prosperity of the, of the promised land. Where that Isaiah is in the mid 700s, so this is 700 years after Moses wrote. Now, when you're doing word studies and phrase studies and idioms, you recognize that words change their meaning, idioms change their meaning, and even from author to author, term, terms differ. So, we're talking about something that is um, 700 years after Moses. It's not the exact same phrase, it's curds and honey. And this is defined in context in the uh, latter part of Isaiah chapter 7 that eating curds and honey is a sign of the oppression that will come to the northern kingdom when the Assyrians conquer them, conquer them that, that their, their fields will be destroyed, all, all of those things. All that will be left is for uh, the wildlife, I mean not wildlife, their livestock, 
uh, to be uh, in place, and that will provide uh, dairy, but it will, they'll have curds and then honey from the bees, and it's a limitation. So, so you, you find this in different places in Scripture where you have a word that is used in a book by a particular author, and in context it's defined one way, but then you find it used by another author 700, 1,000 years later in a different context, and it has a different sense. You can't read one meaning from one year in one context into the meaning seven or eight centuries later in another context, especially when a phrase is used so closely together uh, as, as this one is. So all of this section gives a prediction of... of of the Messiah who will come, and he's the only one who ultimately will resolve it. So in chapter 10, it moves almost seamlessly from talking about the Assyrian invasion and what that's going to uh, look like and how God will protect the southern kingdom from being destroyed into the ultimate fulfillment, the protection, and the establishment of the kingdom. And it just slips from talking about this near issue of the Assyrian invasion into the future, issue, the, the future provision of a perfect kingdom. So in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 24 uh, to 28, we see this comfort from the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, uh, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. He shall... He shall strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt. So obviously they're going to be hit, and they're going to be hit hard, and this imagery of a rod is the imagery of a strong, harsh ruler. We'll come back to that because that word is one of the words that is used to translate uh, branch or, the, or, or rod. Um, Verse 25, forget a very little while, and the, uh, and the uh, indignation will cease, as will my anger in the destruction. If you see me looking hard, it's because I rebound my Bible, and in some places, it, in order to get it, the pages don't quite open, and I can't see that last syllable. And yet the Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb, and, and as his rod was on the sea, so will he lift up in the manner of Egypt. So twice now he's alluded to a period of, of uh, judgment in the time of the Exodus and this one in the time of, the, of, of Gideon in the book of Judges as they uh, slaughtered all of the, the armies of Midian under Zeb and Oreb, who were the two generals. And it says in verse 27, It shall come to pass in the day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder, his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. In other words, the, the, his, the yoke that the Assyrian wants to put on you will be taken away. But then he traces the movement, and you have all these place names, He's come to Aoth, he has passed Migron, at Mishmash he's attended to his equipment, and you follow all that, trace it on a map, this is tracing the progress of the army of, of, of Assyria coming down from the north, and they'll come down to 
uh, to Judah and all but destroyed Jerusalem. That's the whole story of Sennacherib being uh, outside of Jerusalem, surrounding Jerusalem, and then at night the angel of the Lord came and killed everybody in the army except for Sennacherib and a few of his uh, uh, major advisors, and then they got up the next morning, the army's dead, and they had to flee back to Assyria. God had protected Israel. And then at the end, we read in verse 30, um, 33, Behold the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will lop off the bow with terror. See, that's, that's what happens. He lops off the army. The army is represented as these, these trees, as a forest, and he wipes out the forest. He lops off the bow with terror. Those of high stature will be hewn down, and the haughty will be humbled. Sennacherib had to flee back, back home to Assyria, and his, um, uh, his sons conspired against him and assassinated him. So he did, not, he did not end well. So that's the context. And then there's this trans- transition from God cutting down the trees of Assyria. Okay, what happens when you cut down the trees? You're left with stumps. So he transitions from the stumps of the Assyrian army to the stump of Jesse. And he says, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse... That should be from the uh, stump of Jesse. Uh, This is the New King King James translation. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. And that's where we see the introduction of this title again for Jesus, for the Messiah, as the branch of David. And then verse 2 describes the unique way in which God the Holy Spirit will uh, completely and totally fill his ministry The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So what we see here are some key words. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. And the word here for rod is the word hoter, which means a twig or a stem or a branch. It's rather inauspicious. The picture is that that by this time, the house of David has been reduced to a stump. You see a stump, and, and you look at it and go, well, it's, it's going to die. It's no longer productive. It's on the way out. There's nothing there that is significant because the tree's cut down. And so what this shows is that in the future, the house of David is going to be reduced to a stump. It's going to be a shadow of its uh, former self. It's not pictured as a tall, beautiful tree that shelters all of the people under it and produces fruit and, and prosperity for all. It's been destroyed, and now it just appears to be an insignificant, apparently uh, dead stump. But then something happens to rejuvenate the tree, and what we see is that this rod, this stem, uh, comes out. Um, this stem comes out from the stump of Jesse. So that second word there is the word uh, Giza, which is interesting because this is a word. The noun means a stock or a stem or a stump, and it comes from a word that's used some. Uh, it's related to the word for geezer, 
which is a city on the border with uh, Ephraim, and it is uh, it just means something that is cut uh, cut back, and so it has various nuances the way it is used, but uh, here it's related to. Uh, something that keeps coming up in this prophetic literature related to um, related to the the branch that comes out, and this is the word nature, uh translated branch in in this particular uh, this particular passage. The point in all of this is that the house of David will be returned to obscurity. And this fits the same imagery that we see in the prophecy or that we saw in the prophecy of Amos 9.11 that referred to the house of David as the tabernacle of David. The house of David refers to something majestic. It's a house. It's permanent. It, it's got, it has a magnificent structure to it. But then the, the house of David's reduced to a tent. It's a, just a nomadic tent. It has no permanence. It's, it's, uh, it moves around. And so it, it loses its power, its majesty, and its significance. The next thing that we see is that this, this stem, this branch comes out of the stump of Jesse. It doesn't say the stump of David. And who is Jesse? Jesse is David's father. Uh, we find at the end of the book of Ruth a genealogy that ends with David. It goes back further than this. I didn't put the whole gene- genealogy here, but it talks about Salmon, who begot or gives birth to, to is a father of Boaz. Boaz becomes the husband of Ruth, and they have a son named Obed. And Obed gives birth to Jesse. So Jesse is Ruth's grandson. And Jesse then gives birth to David. He's the youngest of his sons. So it traces the line of David, and Jesse is his father. But what do we know about Jesse? Jesse was rather obscure. He's a farmer or a rancher in an area uh, of a very small rural village at this time that was called uh, Bethlehem. It's Bethlehem Ephrata, which means Bethlehem of Ephrata, Ephrat was a a forerunner who settled in that area at the time of the conquest. And so this small village is named Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. Uh, Jesse's a sheep farmer, may have done other things as well. And his youngest son, David, who he didn't think much of, had the responsibility of the sheep. And so the emphasis here on the stump is, and everything, of, and mentioning Jesse, is to emphasize the total obscurity from which David came. And one of the things that we need to recognize is God is always in the business of taking people from obscurity and using them in tremendous ways that impact the church. This last Sunday was Resurrection Day. It was also what? April 21st, San Jacinto Day. But there's another significance that happened on Sunday, and that is that it was the anniversary of the salvation of a rather unique and distinctive individual in, uh, at the time in Massachusetts. He was a young man 
who in the beginning didn't look like he would ever amount to much. His parents died when he was uh, rather young, just entering into his teenage years. He was rather poorly educated. He never got past the 10th grade. He didn't speak well. He was uh, ill-behaved. He had no manners. He was brash. He was uncouth. He was crude. He loved playing pranks on people, which just irritated him so much. And one time he pulled a prank on an Italian shoe salesman who chased him down the street with a knife. He was fully intent on killing him. So this was not a young man who who anybody thought would ever amount to much. Part of his condition, he, he was originally from Northfield, Massachusetts, and he moved to Boston to work in his uncle's shoe stores. The only way he could make any kind of a living, and he was just a teenager, And the condition from his uh, uncle was that he had to go to church every Sunday. And so he went to church every Sunday, and he was in a Sunday school class that was taught by a man named Edward Kimball. Anybody here ever hear of Edward Kimball? Talk about obscurity. This is a man that nobody ever hears, hears of, but his role in church history is phenomenal. Uh, many of us might be Edward Kimball's. We just don't know the impact of whatever ministry we might have, and especially if you're a Sunday school teacher, you don't know how, how the impact you have on your students. So Edward Kimball encouraged him to keep coming to Sunday school to read his Bible. He would pick him up. He would go visit him during the week. He encouraged him in his Bible reading, though he could barely read, and he could... Um, He had really bad grammar, couldn't spell. And Kimball said that he had never seen a more hopeless case as this young man. On April 21st of 1855, Kimball made it a point to go visit him at the store, at the shoe store where he worked. And there he again explained the gospel to him and challenged this young man to trust in Jesus Christ as his Savior. And on that day, he did. But soon after, when he was applying to join the church and to become a member of the church, he was asked the question, uh, what has Jesus Christ done for you? And he paused a few minutes, and he thought, well, I can't think of anything special that Jesus ever did for me. He was a very slow learner, but eventually this young man, whose name was Dwight Lyman Moody, came to clearly not only understand the gospel, but he led, it is estimated, over a million people to the Lord through his various evangelistic crusades, one of which, you may not know this, was General Ulysses S. Grant during one of the many revivals that occurred in the uh, Union Army Uh, during the war between the states. So Moody not only came out of obscurity and, and God used him in a tremendous way, but he founded Moody Bible Institute. So through him, millions and millions of people have been educated to have heard the gospel through the graduates of Moody Bible Institute, and tens of thousands have been educated to uh, to be pastors and missionaries. He also founded the Northfield, Massachusetts Bible Conference and influenced innumerable pastors and Bible teachers like C.I. Schofield and um, Lewis Berry Chafer, among 
uh, among many others. So God is in the business of using obscure people, people who don't look like much at the beginning, in order to transform their lives and use them to transform the lives of of millions. And that is exactly what God is doing with Jesse, who was just a nobody, and David appeared to be just a nobody, just an obscure shepherd uh, at the very beginning. And God eventually uh, raised the, moved the house of Jesse from the backwoods, as it were, of Bethlehem to, uh, to royalty in Jerusalem and through them the blessing of the, of the Messiah. So this is an important lesson to learn. It is picked up in the New Testament in Acts 13.22. There is an allusion to this, and when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king. This is, um, I think this is uh, Paul talking, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel Jesus. So the intertextual connections go into the New Testament. Then when we look at verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and then we have six characteristics in addition to the Spirit of the Lord fully Fully coming, fully informing him, filling him, a spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel and might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. This is alluded to in John three thirty four, where John writes, "For he whom God has sent, that is a reference to Jesus, speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit, and it in in the New King James, New King James, it's by measure. It should be translated without." measure. In other words, you and I, according to 1 Corinthians 12 14, we are given uh, uh, the, the gifts of the Spirit, some a little, some a little more by measure, uh, but not Christ. He has an unrestricted uh, ministry of God the Holy Spirit in his, in his life. Now, if we look at the subsequent verses in Isaiah 11, his delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes. In other words, it's an emphasis on the righteousness of the reign of the Messiah and his objectivity. Verse 4, but with, the right, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, that is, those who are truly humble, not those who are doormats. Moses was the meekest man in the Old Testament, according to the Old Testament, and he was not a man that was a doormat. He was a very strong leader. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. This is another very strong statement. The rod of his mouth there indicates an allusion to Psalm 2, uh, two nine. Let me see here. This Psalm 2.9 indicates his control over the nations. And with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. And so we, I just want to skip down. We'll cover everything in there. We skip down to verse 10. And in verse 10 we read, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. So this is talking about a future time when that kingdom is established. In that day there shall be a root of Jesse, 
who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is not talking about when you die and you go to uh, rest at some cemetery. This is talking about when he takes his position after fighting and defeating the enemies of God, he will rest from his battles. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time. Okay, a very important verse. He will set his hand the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, Elam and Shinar and Amath, and the islands of the sea. Islands of the sea was a term that alluded to uh, the islands at the end of the Mediterranean and beyond. So that's the rest. Basically, islands of the sea becomes an idiom for the rest of the world. So when did God recover all of his people to the land of Israel after their dispersion? When did he do that the first time? He didn't. Many people will say, oh, well, that's what he did at the end of the Babylonian captivity. But that, not that many people, Jews, came back to the land. In the first return under Zerubbabel, it was right around 40,000. And it's not more much, not much more than that in the subsequent returns under Ezra and under Nehemiah. Uh, so that even at the time of Jesus, you still don't have a full 50% of the Jews on the earth living back in the land. They haven't been brought back. But what we see today is they're coming back from all over the world, and we're just about at that 50% point. More Jews are living in the land of Israel today than have ever lived in the land of Israel in history. And it's increasing, and the number of Jews that are leaving England and France and Germany, Ukraine, all the other places in, in the world where it's becoming increasingly a hostile environment due to the increase of anti-Semitism, um, this is just going to increase. And Jewish and Israelis are having more babies, so the demographics are increasing every year. It won't be long before the majority of Jews in the world live in, in Israel. In Isaiah chapter 12, there's a praise to God and at the beginning, we read, Behold, God is my salvation. This is a praise for the giving of the branch. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. So this is a reference to the fact that the branch is the one who is who provides this salvation. Now, that completes what I want to go through in terms of Isaiah but one of his contemporaries was the prophet Micah. So I want to turn to, to Micah, chapter 5. I want to go back for a minute. What slide am I on? 22. Okay. Micah 22. See, Micah, Isaiah, we've covered Hosea, we've covered Amos, now Isaiah, and now we go to Micah. So this will complete the uh, 9th to 8th century uh, prophets. So you turn to uh, Micah, chapter 5. 
which I'll find eventually. I know Mike is hiding in here. There we go. Micah is, has Micah is very similar in things that he says to uh, to Isaiah, and in these chapters he emphasizes the birth of the Messiah. And so we'll go. Let me go back to that slide. Slide number twenty-two. Micah five two. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. See, th- th- just the very mention of Bethlehem tells you this is a connection to the family of David. Bethlehem of Ephrath, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, you're insignificant, you're just a small uh, backwater village, rural town. Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. This is related to the, being a descendant of David. He will uh, come forth to be the ruler in Israel, tying it to the kingship that is part of the Davidic covenant. His goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So on the one hand, he's going going to be born in Bethlehem, which tells you he's human. He's a descendant of David, which tells you he's human. But he he has a a beginning that goes back into eternity past. He has no no, no beginning. He is eternal. His goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And then in verse 3, a verse we usually don't go to, he says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time that he, she who is in labor has given birth. And what this is talking about is that there will be, uh, Israel will be under discipline until she who is in labor has given birth. And this is an uh, allusion to Isaiah 7.14 and the uh, the virgin birth. Only after that birth of the Messiah will the remnant of the of Israel uh, be reunited as a nation. So first there's going to be the birth of this Messiah, then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. So what this covers is thousands of years. You look at it and you think, well, this is all going to happen right away, but it takes thousands of years, but that's the framework. The fulfillment of that in terms of the intertextual connection is seen in Leviticus 2, 4 through 7, where we're told that that after the census of Augustus that Joseph has to go to his hometown, so he goes up from Galilee, that's elevation, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. There's our, our connection. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. That's why this is important. Ties it right into all these Davidic covenant passages. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. So here we see this this connection. Isaiah, Micah, tie this together for us, and this is a fulfillment of that Davidic promise and the Davidic uh, covenant. So now we'll come to Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah is a century or more after Isaiah. He comes at the end of the 7th century in the period starting around 605, and his life will overlap the, the, um, the exile. He will be alive in Jerusalem, ministering in Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar uh, destroys Jerusalem and destroys the temple. He will end up going, being taken uh, down to Egypt. And he states in Jeremiah twenty three twenty five, where he's talking about, I mean, the context talk about God scattering the flock, and then he will gather the remnant out of all the countries where he's driven them. And in the midst of this, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. Now, see, because we did our homework and we looked at Isaiah 4.2 and we looked at Isaiah 11 and these other passages, we understand this connection. Isaiah 11 talks about the branch from the stump of Jesse, and then it describes his reign in Isaiah 11:3 through 5 as a reign of righteousness. So this is summarized here, David, a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and a prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. That's a summary of Isaiah 11, 3 through 5. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he will be called uh, the Lord, our righteousness. So this is a fulfillment of the, of, of the Davidic covenant. Now, let's skip ahead to Jeremiah 30. Jeremiah chapter 30, we have uh, continue to have the same broad context we have all through, all through Jeremiah that is talking about the, return, the future return of Israel and Judah to the land. But in this context, Jeremiah talks about the fact that that future return is going to be preceded by a time of incredible distress on Israel and Judah. Since Israel went out under the fifth cycle of discipline in 722, this means that that indicates that this is all something that future, because at the time Jeremiah is writing, they're not, they're not relevant because they're out, they've been scattered. But his address here in these chapters, especially in verses four through seven, emphasizes the th- this 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 return. In verse three, we read, "For behold, the days are coming," says the Lord, "that I will bring back from captivity my people called Israel and Judah," says the Lord, "and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it." So this indicates a full possession that did not occur in the intertestamental period or in any of the second temple period, basically. Then we get down to verses 8 and 9. We read, For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your, from your neck. Uh, let's just, wait a minute, let me look at verse 7. Verse 7 tell, tells us about all this horror there, and it's called 
the time of Jacob's trouble at the end of verse 7. So that's the tribulation. But he shall be saved out of it, for it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that I will break his yoke from your neck. That's the yoke of the, of the Antichrist. And will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So this time when they are restored to the land is a time when God will raise up. So this is talking about the resurrection of David, and he will reign over them. Then if we turn forward a couple of chapters to Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 14, we also see this same emphasis on on forgiveness and return throughout that chapter. In verse 14, we read, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. What is the promise? The promise here is the Davidic covenant. We know that because in the next verse he says, In those days and at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. And this is that word tzemach. That's the same word that I pointed out in 2 Samuel 23, 5, that David uses the verb to talk about the increase or the sprouting that God will bring. Uh, he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. That's Isaiah 11, uh, 3 through 5 again. Then in verse 60 says, In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell safely, and this is the name by which she shall be called uh, Yahweh Tzedekinu, the Lord our righteousness. And that also goes back to Jeremiah uh, 23, uh, 5 to 8. For this says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So again, the, 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 there's the announcement that in the future it's going to come together and David will be resurrected. David will reign over Israel and the Messiah, the greater son of David, will reign over, uh, over all of the earth. Now the next passage I want to look at is in uh, Ezekiel 21-25. Ezekiel 21, 25, Thus says the Lord God, Remove the turban and take off the crown. Nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the humble and humble the exalted. And then in verse 27 he says, A ruin, a ruin, a ruin. New King James says, Overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. What's the it? What is it that is ruined? It's the house of David. What we've seen in all these prophecies, going back to Amos, Amos told us, that the, the, the magnificence of the house of David was going to be reduced to a tabernacle. This is also stated in the, the whole imagery of the stump of Jesse. And it's, it's ruined. There's going to be a defeat to the house of David. It's going to look like that's the end, and the house of David is no more. The, that's, that's what happens in the uh, defeat of Judah in, in uh, 586 B.C., that it looks like it's all over with, and yet there will be a time when that stump that appears to be dead is going to sprout forth a branch. So Ezekiel is saying the same thing, that the house of David is going to be ruined, it's going to be overthrown, and uh, it will be no more until he comes 
whose right it is, and I will give it to him. Now, I'm not going to go through the details on this, but in the Hebrew there, this phrase, until he comes whose right it is, part of the terminology in the Hebrew is Shiloh. Shiloh. Now, Shiloh, is, that's a prophecy that goes back to, to Genesis chapter 49, and it's taken as a name for the Messiah, how it's normally interpreted. But Shiloh there doesn't mean that it's talking about the, 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 the scepter will not depart from the house of Judah until he whose right it is comes. It's not until Shiloh comes. It's until he whose right it is comes, uh, based on the comparison of the Hebrew with Ezekiel twenty-one twenty-seven. So the house is seems to be devastated, the house of David, until he whose right it is comes, the Lion of Judah. Then we go to Ezekiel thirty-four twenty-three. Uh, this is the second to last passage we're going to look at. And this is simply a statement that God promises, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. So this is talking about a literal David. This is not a, another, an allusion to Jesus, the Messiah. It's referring to David, who will rule over Israel as a, uh, as a vice regent of Jesus, the Messiah, who rules over all of the world. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, one last verse I want to look at, which connects a lot of these dots, because the phrase that we keep seeing again and again and again is the word zerah, which means seed. It can refer to all the descendants or some descendants. Seed is a key word in, in the Abrahamic covenant, but it's also a key word in the Davidic covenant. And I want to take us, as we wrap up, to understand something in Galatians 3.16. This is, I don't think I, br- I brought this out or understood this when I taught Galatians 20 years ago. This is a verse that is often cited in defense of, of inerrancy, in defense of the fact that every jot and tittle, every ending, every grammar form, everything is inspired by God. Paul is arguing in this chapter for the Abrahamic blessing and that the Messiah will come from Abraham. And he says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He says, he does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, singular, who is Christ. And he's making the point that the text that he's referring to is referring to the seed in the singular. Now, what did I tell you? The word seed is one of those collective nouns that can either refer to a group or it can refer to an individual. So how does Paul get this word to be a specific singular? That's the fun part of Bible study. Genesis twenty-two seventeen. God is talking to Abraham. It's after the substitute of the sacrifice of the ram for Isaac. 
says, blessing, I will bless you. He's reaffirming the covenant with Abraham. He says, blessing, I will bless you, or I will certainly bless you, and I will certainly multiply your descendants. And there you have the same word, but it's clearly from context referring to many and not one. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants... And here it shifts. This is very interesting because it's never translated correctly. There's not a single English translation that translates it correctly, not one. Your descendants, and it should be your seed, singular. This is what Paul's referring to. And the reason he, he can say that that word as, as a collective noun is being used as a singular is because he says, your descendant shall possess the gate of, and it's always translated their enemies, but the Hebrew has a masculine singular ending, his enemy. It is not their enemy in the Hebrew text at all. That's where Paul gets this. He says it's his enemy. It's seed singular here because this pronoun is a singular pronoun. Now, how is that for an obscure, sophisticated argument? See, that's why we have to know the original languages. That's why we have to study the text over and over again, and that's how we have to keep keep growing is that, that these little things are there, and they don't, you can't rely. Now, I'm not saying don't read your English because you'll get misled, but you can't rely fully on a, on a translation in anything. One of the quotes I, I, I frequently use when I'm teaching Bible study methods and why it's important to know the original languages is a quote from a, a somewhat liberal uh, Hebrew scholar, Old Testament scholar, a couple of generations back, and he said... He said, no one who was serious about the study of French literature would ever take courses on French literature from someone who had never read French literature in the original. And yet we have people every Sunday who sit in congregations and listen to pastors who can't read the original languages. That's a convicting statement. And I've used that in front of a lot of pastors who don't know the original languages to try to motivate them, is that we need to know the original language. But this is just great because it goes back to the fact that there is this one descendant, this one descendant, this one offspring, this one seed who's the focal point of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, and only he will bring in a reign of righteousness and a reign of justice and bring prosperity to the world. So that wraps up this study of the Davidic covenant, and next time we'll come back to see how David is just blown away by God's grace in giving him this 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 covenant. In Isaiah chapter 7, um, I mean, uh, excuse me, Second Samuel chapter 7 goes directly into David's response and his psalm of praise and thanks to God. Father, thanks for this opportunity to study your word and to see how all these connections fit and how everything focuses on only one possible person, and that is Jesus of Nazareth, who is the eternal Son of God. 
Thank you for helping us understand these things and the confidence it brings us in the truthfulness of your and accuracy of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.